Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Ian Sterling's Scottish accent might be known around the world for narrating the exploits of the hit British reality TV series Love Island. But in Sterling's first Amazon original stand-up special, Failing Upwards, the comedian finds himself falling short of everyone else's expectations when it comes to his physical health and his love life. Sterling sat down with me over Zoom to discuss how growing up in Edinburgh sparked his early comedy career, the realities of working with his wife in reality TV, and why he wanted to make sure his comedy special for Amazon was truly special. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. Yeah, my microphone has a button that I don't know what it does. Oh, has it got like the figure of eight and all those? I'm, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a professional uh, voiceover artist. You've you could have fooled me, mate. It's been absolutely phenomenal work so far. <laughs> so, last things first. How long into this podcast would it take for my listeners to know who you are without me mentioning you by name? Um, that would well instantly from me speaking if they watch the British television program Love Island. Otherwise. I don't think they would know necessarily. I don't know. I don't, I've not really, um, if it's stateside wise, I don't, unless they've came down to the New York comedy club where I done 10 minutes <laughs> unannounced for visa reasons. I can't imagine they would know me at all. Right. It, it has to be, it has to be wild because, you know, you're, you're famous for for narrating Love Island in the UK, mm-hmm. but you're you're never seen on screen, right? Have no, you ever been on screen? Not on the show. Yeah, they used to do a sort of um, again. You let me know if any of these references are to UK, but they used to do a sort of um, a dumping or eviction every week, uh, sort of a live show, studio show thing outside the villa in the first series, a la Big Brother. Mm -hmm. But they sort of got rid of that because it was sort of annoying having to do something with the contestants every week. It sort of messed with the chemistry. It was nice to just sort of move them on or as and when felt right or when they decided to do so. So that was, so that, so I was on doing stand-up actually, that first series. Oh, wow. Um, it was weird, though, because it was, the show wasn't its first series, so no one knew what it was, and it was filmed in Spain. So we got people, sort of British holidaymakers, and as they'd been on holiday in Spain, they obviously hadn't seen the show because the show went out in the UK. So I was doing stand-up about a television show that nobody had seen. <laughs> and characters in the show that nobody had seen. Um, so it was, a, it was an odd one. I don't know if there's clips of it anywhere or anything like that. I think if the first series, it might, if it's on, like, I don't know, wherever wherever in america has love island uk now you might be able to find it but yeah no that was very fleeting and the first series sort of went largely under the radar so since the show sort of found its legs i've not really been on it at all which i quite like yeah but but that tells me that you also went there right 
We go, yeah, we go there for the whole the whole time. I think it sort of started out initially because the voiceover job originally, I guess, was just sort of going to be rather functional and maybe add a little bit of comedy value, but it wasn't going to be by any means a big part of the show. I just sort of was a mem- another member of staff, so it was just everyone was in Spain, so they just had me in Spain. It was easier that way to have me. They don't have to deal with me logistically it's actually easier to fly me on a plane than it is to use technology to you know beam me into those areas right or to have you sitting where you're sitting now watching the footage and narrating yeah which we, the... which we can yeah thanks to covid and things like that we can do that now and the technology is there but it sort of wasn't before and mm-hmm. um yeah because of covid everyone's recording and all that is sort of vastly improved i feel like everyone's sort of caught up with me now i've got all these fancy mics and whatnot now everyone's <laughs> got there i felt like i was sort of cutting edge at the time but yeah no so i always go out there apart from one year due to covid but i've sort of always spent two months of my year in spain i think europe's quite small as well it's a two hour two and a half hour flight it's not um it's not far right but mallorca is a world away from Edinburgh. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of, I, I find that, I've done a road trip of America and I sort mm-hmm. of, there's sort of this joke in the UK of like Americans don't travel. Mm-hmm. But it's funny when you actually coast to coast America, you realise that it is like different worlds everywhere you go. And Europe's basically the exact same, but then you've got to add language on top of that as well. So yeah, the weather is vastly different. <laughs> and and also we stay in a German tourist resort in Spain. So most of the people there, English will be their third or fourth language. Still mm-hmm. phenomenal English, which is sort of um, <laughs> yet more embarrassment for the Americans and Brits. But um, Does that yeah, make it's it? A, it's a funny old area. Does that make it easier or tougher for them to decipher a Scottish accent? I think it's like I'm I'm very rarely asking for anything other than a couple of beers. So it's mm-hmm. normally okay. We're, <laughs> we're never having it. We very rarely have a deep dive. I know as you joke in, in your special for Amazon Prime Video, Failing Upwards, being Scottish helps as a tourist. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> there is a, I, I, I think there is, it is a bit, there's a sort of, um, it's different in America, everyone. I think it, in America, people think of, the UK and they basically think of just England and they think of the queen and all that sort of stuff. But within Europe, England's got this sort of, um, yobbish, um, stereotype attached to it through, mm-hmm. um, football hooliganism and <laughs> sort of, I get, and also just through the British empire and their sort of like questionable history and whatnot as well. Right. Um, it's obviously not true of all English people. It's actually not true of the majority, but there is that sort of, you do genuinely have a thing where if you go abroad um, and people think you're English in Europe and you correct them and say that they're Scottish, there's very often a sort of sense of relief in there that you're not going to vote for Brexit and tear the place apart. Right. There's been a j- Americans, we've had a joke for at least the last 20 years that traveling abroad, we say we're Canadian. There's an amazing com- British comedian called Sarah Pascoe Mm-hmm. Who does a very? It's old now, um, but she had a very good joke where you say, "If you ever hear someone with an American accent, 
you ask them where about in Canada are you from? Because if <laughs> if they're if they're Canadian, they go, oh my god, everyone assumes I'm American, and if they're American, they go, oh my god, she thinks I'm intelligent. So that sort of uh, it's based stuff, but it's a bit of fun, right? Yeah. So growing up in Edinburgh, did that make it more likely or less likely that you would pursue comedy in the performing arts, having your city? overwhelmed by it every August for the Fringe? Hugely more likely. Hugely more likely. I think it was about 13, 14. My August would be spent traveling into the center and going to see majority comedy. And I, me and my friend Greg, we sort of became obsessed with them. Um, there's a big thing in the UK, sort of um, university comedy troops. The Cambridge Footlights is the biggest example that sort of gave birth sure. to Monty Python and stuff. So we'd go and see the Oxford Review and the Cambridge Footlights. And then there was another, um, there's a Durham, every university's got one, Oxford and Cambridge, obviously the most famous. Mm-hmm. And when you're 13, 14, and you see these 18, 19 year olds in this like dark basement room doing these sketches, it's sort of, they became weirdly my sort of idols, people that aren't <laughs> all that more older than me. And then that, from there, I got into like Python and Little Britain and the Mighty Bush and stuff like that. And then I started doing sketch comedy quite young, like 14, 15. I think I put on my first Edinburgh Fringe show with my friend. So yeah, so, I, mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done any comedy otherwise. I can't, I didn't come from a, I'm not from a background where there's no, there was no drama at my school. There's no theatre where I, like on the estate where I grew up, it was, ve- I mean, there was very little to do other than get yourself in bother. So yeah. how close did you get to becoming a lawyer or a barrister or what have you? Um, so I went, to, I, I went to Edinburgh University. I tried to go to Oxford University because of the comedy review element. Nobody, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but Cambridge is the better one, but nobody told me that. <laughs> so I tried to get into Oxford, but I didn't get in, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I went and done law at Edinburgh. And um, I graduated... Um, but I'd already been a year into stand-up and I'd already been offered a job on kids' TV. So although I graduated, I was already graduating with a sort of job in the world of entertainment. So it wasn't fair. And I wasn't very good at it, if I'm being completely honest either. Right. And then, and then a full dozen years or so later, you decide to turn that experience into buffering, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, so I've written a, I've wrote a sitcom called Buffering, which is basically about a kids' TV presenter that hates kids and hates kids' TV. And um, so that, yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I sort of wrote a, I sort of wrote a sitcom based in the kids' TV studio because there's something innately funny about children's television. Like when I was working in kids' TV, I would try to explain to my friends why my day was so difficult. And it's sort of difficult to not do that without being funny. So I'd be like, oh, it's so annoying. I got gunged this morning and the gunge was really cold and I had to get changed and I had this wig on and the wig got all crusty and like it hurt my skin. And you can just see everyone just laughing at you dressed in a wig getting gunged. And you're like, I'm trying to open up here. So that's why that sitcom... I think there just is an innate undertone of funny and tragedy about kids' TV, even though it's a very fun thing to do. 
Right. I mean, well, you are, you were also so young when you started doing children's TV. You were not, you were what, 21? Yeah, I was 21 and I've been. So you were, you were barely not a kid yourself. No, I was just drinking in Amer- and by American laws, wasn't I? But right. we were, by, by Scottish laws, 12 years <laughs> deep at this point, 10 years, which I wish was a joke. I wish that was a joke. Um, but um, yeah, it was sort of funny as well because I just started doing stand up and like you sort of, um, when you start doing stand up, I think you sort of default go down this sort of like shock comedy route. Because when you, it's harder to get laughs, so you can get any sort of reaction from an audience. You sort of value it, so it's much easier to use a word or a topic that's sort of shocking. Because at least you get something from a crowd. Right. So I was sort of thinking I was the next Bill Hicks by night, and then by day I was talking to a puppet dog dressed as a cheerleader being gunged. And it was at twenty-one. That's quite a. It's sort of hard to get your head around it. So did it feel like even though you were a success because you're on the telly that you weren't living your dreams because this is not what you had dreamed when you were 13, 14, watching the footlights? Exactly. I think that is sort of exactly it. I think that there's that folly in youth, isn't there, where I, I, it's funny now what I got jealous of. Like I would, my friends were doing a gig in Manchester and they'd all, go to the cinema during the day and I couldn't go to the cinema during the day because I had to go and film a TV show. Whereas as you get older, you worry because you're at the cinema during the day and all your friends are off (laughs) recording (laughs) podcasts and filming TV shows and stuff. So I felt like I wasn't, um, I wasn't living that sort of like comedian lifestyle that I sort of longed for. But then also you find that in retrospect, no comedian really wants to have seven afternoons free to go to the cinema every day. They want to have work and purpose. So, yeah, I did definitely feel like being a kids TV presenter was getting in the way of um, what I really wanted to do. But then, but now in hindsight, I look back at some of that stuff I've done on kids TV and it's really funny stuff. So it's sort of like, it's a bit frustrating, really. I sort of, I, I loved it, but I feel like maybe I could have enjoyed it that little bit more if I just lent into it and been like, this is what I do now for a bit. And that's fine. Well, how much catharsis then did it provide you to be able to revisit that whole milieu for buffering? Yeah, well, I've, it was a first series, so we're really proud of it. I feel like that'll be something we develop explore properly in like future series like this idea that ian who's the main character that's my name that's how good my acting is <laughs> the character has to be called by my name or I'd get confused right i think it will be that world where he thinks he's too good for a world and then eventually that world will maybe start to slip away and you i think we've all in our lives done that thing if it's work or whatever or a relationship not that you think you're too good for it but you think it's not for you you it's not what you want and it's not till you start to lose it that you realize oh maybe this is what i want maybe this is as good as it gets so it's sort of an interesting i find that idea really interesting in comedy and just in life in general of like how do you know how do you know what's the if you're doing the right thing and what's the right moves to make and it's it's impossible it's one of the big things we're always trying to solve did you have any kind of existential 
dilemma then when you were presented with the gig for Love Island? Originally, yeah. So, like, originally I said, I sort of said no to it. Um, originally, for the simple reason that it's over the summer, during July, and um, I'm sure the people that are into comedy enough to listen to this know, but, like, there's the Edinburgh Fringe every year. So, as a UK comedian, you basically have to write a new hour of material every year to bring it to the Fringe. And that's your sort of, like, when you lay out your stall, that's your... Um, you're showcasing yourself. Um, so it's got to be good. So to go to Spain to do a voiceover job for two months in June, July would have meant my show not being as good as it could have been. Mm-hmm. And it was my flatmate at the time, a comedian called uh, Phil Wang, very funny comedian. He's got oh, he's, very- he's been on the podcast, yeah. Oh, brilliant. He's got a very good special on Netflix. A really great guy. Um, awful flatmate. No, he's, at, he's not actually. He's fantastic, <laughs> fantastic flatmate. He made the point that you go to the Edinburgh Fringe to get jobs like this, so you should obviously do it. So I'd done it and it it worked out. But yeah, there, there wasn't... I'd sort of been off kids' TV for like a year, a bit more than that. I'd been doing stand-up and it did feel like, am I going to put yet again another obstacle in the way of being a full-time comedian? But I... I, I'm so glad I didn't make that decision. I guarantee I, I wouldn't be talk, talking to you today. I'm, right. I'm well, British, of that. it feels to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It feels to me as though the UK has an even richer tradition of reality television. And I only say that because it's, it feels as though a lot of the formats that we have in America are adapted from the UK. I think there is something sort of very European about reality TV. At least it feels like that to me. Mm-hmm. Like um, the sort of like the idea of the underdog and um, letting your guard down and not caring what other people think and that sort of idea that sort of like quintessential elements to a reality TV program. Mm-hmm. I think even in America, the the reality TV that, I watch in love has still got that sort of like veneer of um, showbiz to it, of the American dream. Sort of, um, <laughs> there's the core of reality TV drenched in this sort of this American flag, really, like a selling sunset or something like that, where everyone's mm. being very honest and upfront, but you know they've been in makeup for hours beforehand before they have this <laughs> iconic conversation. Which isn't to take nothing away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really know enough about um, reality TV in America, but certainly from my experience, the big ones in the UK, sort of Big Brother and Love Island, tend to travel worldwide. But yeah. there wasn't a. I, I guess I asked because I presume then there wasn't a stigma attached to the idea of taking taking the job. It was more just how does this impact my building of an hour for the French. Do you know what? I think there was actually, I think there was a stigma. I think there was an idea of if I done this show, I might be able to widen my audience, but I might alienate some of the more comedy purists. I actually feel like that's changed for a number of reasons. Like, um, so like, uh, how do I, I think it has, I think when I first took the job, it was like, you might be known as the Love Island guy and then you won't get booked for, X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. because you're not sort of like an out and out stand up comedian. So like in the UK, it's like panel shows and 
radio stuff, that sort of thing. You won't Which get Tazmasker if you... <laughs> well, exactly that. No, exactly that. But then I think two things happened. The sort of voiceover for Love Island went quite well. I think a lot of comedians started doing comedy voiceovers. You had a comedian in the UK called Joel Domit who finished really high up in a reality TV show called um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Ironically, he went on that show, Not a Celebrity, and then came out very famous. That's really winning. Yeah. And then I think little things like that happened that turned it around. And now I think as well with comics, the, the, and, it's, and this is where we're so behind America, but in the UK, we're catching up with the idea of like these sort of like television gatekeepers, these commissioners that make things that mean that you can get a wider audience are disappearing because podcasting, YouTube, all these things. I mean, just talk about YouTube now like it's a new idea. It's mad. But like these things were actually, you can build an audience however you want. And then once you've got that audience, you can put out a thing and then people will judge you on the, that thing as opposed to they'll judge you for what you've been on or what shows you can get and can't get and stuff. So I think the, the pendulum is moving really, really quickly now. It's only in the last couple of years this idea of like every comedian's got a podcast in the UK. That is a ve- that's a very new idea over here. Now nowadays every comedian has a podcast. Um, I'm very much behind the curve, but um, yeah, it was never a thing before. Uh, and also, you know, now for the last couple of years, you've been able to work with your wife, Laura Whitmore. Yeah. How, how is it different recording voiceover? When your wife is the host. Well, we're sort of quite lucky on that front in terms of we both work on the show Love Island, but the the crossover is actually incredibly small, really. She goes, there was sort of a running joke, and it's always been a joke with me and the writer, my friend Mark, we write the voiceover. We love the days the presenter's in because that's like our day off because the presenter does all the talking. So we almost high-five each other when the presenter comes in because all we have to do is say, and here comes Laura. And then from then on in, she does all the heavy lifting. So it's sort of great. Um, We don't really cross over much in that sense. And on a sort of personal note, it's obviously fantastic because I'm in Spain for eight weeks and it just means she's over in Spain doing that as well, whether it be pockets of time at a go or all the time or whatever it is so it's yeah it's really it's really fortunate actually for me which i'm very happy about and she's very good at the what she does as well which is obviously doubly fortunate so i've got someone that i can trust to do the job when I'm and also the two of you didn't have to play the game yourself of course i mean yeah if she was a contestant <laughs> then obviously that would be an absolute worry wouldn't it if she just walks like- in yeah, you didn't have to meet her the same way that the, the people you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, just for the American listeners, in case you've never seen Love Island, it's not like Squid Game. It's not like you win it. <laughs> it's not like you win it and then you get to come back next year, but as the commentator. <laughs> <laughs> How did you two meet? You and Laura. We, we, well, we were sort of like in the same sort of friendship circles and stuff for years. And then we just met through recording different programs. Just one of those, it was almost, almost like a work colleague situation, really. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we just sort of um, were in, this, in the same circles and just gravitated to each other naturally. 
You say that you're in the same circles, but when you joke about her in the special, it's as if the tabloid media has no idea that you're in the same world as your wife. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there's there's two elements that I feel. I feel um, it's funny that it's funny that joke because I've got a joke about how um, I'm sort of the the side element to many when me and Laura are in the the, the media. And obviously, there is a there is a, a there is a truth to that. That is why it works as a joke. There's also a more interesting and harder to articulate element of the treatment of women within the the media. I mean, on the gr- the grand scheme of things, the joke should really be: I get it incredibly easy compared to my wife because she is a because she's a lady, and maybe that's the sort of thing going forward down the line. At some point, I will try and make that funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, there is that, I mean, there is that thing, like, especially if we go to an event or whatever, she's, um, she's just a very, um, impressive person. And like <laughs> being in the shadow Aww. of that is funny, but even though it's not right. necessarily completely true, but for, mm-hmm. for committed purposes, it, it does work. Did you feel like you had to at least mention her in the special? It's always really tricky talking about um, my personal life and even like my um, work and stuff because you don't know how much groundwork needs to go into it. Like Mm -hmm. this special that I'm doing is getting released worldwide. So do I want a really boring bit where I explain that my wife also works in television and she's done these things, which is maybe a bit, you know, it's a lot of path to lead for a joke. But at the same time, I don't know if like maybe an American audience gets left behind by that. So yeah, I didn't feel the need to men- I didn't feel the need to mention her. It was more I felt what context was needed when I did mention her. But that also applies to my what I do for a living. Like I've got a lot of jokes about my voice being more famous than my face because I do voiceover. So it's like how much you need to spoon feed an audience that I do the voiceover on a TV show. Cause it feels sort of like really presumptive to be like love Island. You've all heard of it. That feels like quite arrogant to me, but at the same time, how boring if someone paid to see my show and I'm explaining what love Island is. And they're like, yeah, man, we know what that is because we're here. You idiot. <laughs> so <it's laughs> That's quite... the reason we paid tickets. to. Be yeah. Here. So it is, it's quite a tricky. Yeah. It's funny. You asked that because it is, it is a pertinent question, but probably not not because it's a elephant in the room, more because it's a it's a how that's what it is. The whole time I'm thinking, how much do the audience actually know about me? That's the tricky that's the tricky thing, I guess. And and there's a it's, it almost feels like there's the American person that's like the American part of me. This is just from like me watching lots of stand up. It's like mm-hmm. they all know me. They're here to see me, which is actually quite a healthy view to have in the world. And there's the very British. They probably don't even know who I am. They've probably only bought a ticket <laughs> because they, because they live nearby. And this is oh god, what am I doing? There's that sort of vibe as well. I I imagine there's probably people who are just going to watch to see if you kept in the bit with the audience member leaving to take a piss yeah i mean like that was a, that was i'm so glad we were we weren't going to keep it in because it was so long and we've managed yeah to i was i was curious because it was so long I, I i would love to know what you think about it because basically 
uh, for people who haven't seen it yet, a guy goes to the toilet during the show, and he's a lovely guy. Like you could tell, he was so mortified that he had to go to the toilet, but he was gone for honestly about ten minutes. But I was waiting for him to come back in because I thought, oh, to record it. But we're having lots of fun in the room. But I was like, if I start another bit, then he walks back in and bloody bloody blah. And basically, he was waiting. He didn't want to come back in because he didn't want to like ruin the show a second time. So I think someone from the venue or someone from the, the uh, special team were like running around the venue trying to find him. And so I went, oh, no, he, he's waiting for you to come back. <laughs> so, yeah, we left it in. I left it in because I felt like I felt it was fun. I felt like the payoff at the end, maybe, not maybe, I felt like the payoff at the end justifies it. It's, it's a really fun moment. And it, I don't, a few specials have got like heckles and stuff, but I don't, I've never seen a special where like, the gigs actually just derailed for like five minutes while we just wait for this guy to come back. So it felt like, it felt like a little nice moment to save forever. Right. But, I guess, but, yeah. yeah, that's what I, I figured, but I wanted to hear your answer. I figured that in some ways it does make the special more special because it's something that only happens in that yeah. moment. It's but not- then there's always the worry of is it in the like in the room, obviously, as you can imagine. If you anyone that's been to a live performance, it was electric in the room when it was happening because people were like, "What is going <laughs> on?" and we're having such a laugh. And then you've got to edit that down to make it work for telly. Right? Is it a bit alienating to the people that were watching home? Who knows? We'll find out. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed it. I really liked that bit. And also, I always find like. I see online a lot now. There's always these sort of like heckle put downs and stuff go online and people seem to like that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't really like picking on people. I'm more like celebrating people. So it felt like a nice way of doing that my own way. The trend that I've seen, and I mentioned this, uh, I just reviewed Ricky Gervais's new special for Netflix. And the trend that I've seen recently, especially on Netflix, but it it's, it's, and no matter what the platform is, is comedians will say something, then they'll go, "Oh, this will never make the special." <laughs> but I'm wa- but we're watching it in the special. This will get me. In- this will so- get me in so much trouble. Well, it. <laughs> well, it though. Well, it though. But whenever they say this will never make the special, it's like it seems like such a conceit. Do you know, um, because they don't, they never edit it out. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. It's like the new Where Did You Learn to Whisper in a Helicopter? Like, it's absolutely <laughs> mad. There's one comedian that does it brilliantly. And there is there's a comedian called Greg Davies, which is in the British version of The Inbetweeners. And he's the Taskmaster on Taskmaster. Okay. He's got a special out. It's at the back of my mother's head or something like that. He's got so many great specials, firing cheese balls, like dogs. He's got millions. But I think this one's called The Back of My Mother's Head or something to that effect. It's on Netflix. And the first minute or 30 seconds are the credits and you can see him doing stand-up. You can just hear the muffle and the muffles the audience laugh. And there's a huge laugh to start when the credits come down, the special starts and he goes, well, that's never going to make it into the special. And it actually did it. And I'm like, brilliant. Well done. <laughs> he shows him doing a routine that gets a massive laugh from the crowd. And then you, you don't have no idea what he said. And he goes, well, that'll not make it in the special. And then he starts the show. <laughs> And you're like, that good, do that then. Right. I wonder I because it also makes you wonder what did you what did, what happened? Well that but then why not that just think outside the box. It's so funny how these things are coming around now and this whole like, oh, 
Oh, I shouldn't be saying that. They're... And again, listen, I'm, I am not the, by any stretch of the imagination, the greatest comedian. I'm not here to be like, oh, this is how you need to do it. I think it's more interesting that for a while, that whole like, I can't believe I said that was a really interesting and funny way to do things. And then all the com- comedy constantly comes full circle. And then you've got to subvert that and subvert that. So I think now there is surely a more interesting way of going around these sorts of things than saying something offensive, saying that you're not allowed to say it and then carrying on. Everyone carries on regardless. It feels done to me. But what do, what do I know about anything? I'm, <laughs> I'm panicking even saying that, given that opinion. I, I just, I don't really, I don't know. I don't well, know. I don't know if this will make the podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned earlier about how comedians now have like more power and more platforms. And I just wanted to make sure I asked you how important Twitch is to oh, your career. I love it. I, I absolutely love it. My, my friend Alfie Brown, another fantastic comedian, referred to it as long form social media, which I totally agree with. So if you, it's a streaming platform, Twitch, where you can like chat or play games. I like just because I'm on for like two, three hours at a time just talking, I feel like it's the most authentic me. And I don't mean that in a sort of like uh, Los Angeles, Hollywood, like authentic self. I just mean like I'm on for three hours. I've got, you can only keep up a pretense for so long, right? So I feel like I give off the most me vibes I give. And I feel like TV shows are edited or instagram's only one picture whereas with twitch i feel like you really get a vibe of who i am which i really enjoy and i I like the platform i like subverting it and messing around with it and i still think it's sort of massively underused so i I really like it It feels like a sort of fun safe space like play around with ideas well ian i know you said you don't feel like a true professional comedian unless you've done a podcast during the day so Thank you for sitting with me. Thank you for getting up so early for this, Sean. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. Oh, thanks so much, man. Have a lovely day. You too. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.